Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome back to Meet the Early Day Saints. I'm Blair Hodges, and we're joined in this episode by Dr. D. Jill Kirby, an associate professor of religious studies at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin. And Dr. Kirby contributed a chapter called Living in the Afterlife, Heaven, Hell, and Places Between. Jill, welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. Hey, Blair. Good to be here. I'm going to set the stage a little bit here. Your chapter starts out by observing that death was a tremendous concern for early Christians, just as it has been down the centuries for most people. And your chapter is about how early Christians grappled with death, especially in light of Jesus' resurrection. They had a lot of important questions about death, but you say that their scripture that they had didn't have a lot of direct answers or clear answers. They had, scripture had a lot of ideas and things. And so early Christians, we'll find, weren't necessarily unified on everything. There was intellectual and theological diversity. So I wanted to start out just by asking, as you're preparing your chapter, how you narrowed it down to the topics that you covered, given that there was this diversity of thought for early Christians. Right. So that was pretty tough. I could have written an entire book on this and, and uh, still had a lot more to say about it. But um, first it's set by the title. You got to talk about heaven. You got to talk about hell and you got to talk about what's there. And um, I started to try to come to grips with this. And, you know, the first thing that really struck me is wherever, whatever they're talking about, Christ is always there somewhere you will find Christ. And so that was kind of, that kind of became the thread that I ran, one thread that I ran through it. And um, the other thread that kind of runs through it is I wanted, whatever it was I had to say about these things and the extraordinary diversity, I always wanted to come back to Augustine because he kind of sets the pace for things in the West. And um, whatever it was that was going on elsewhere, uh, many Latter-day Saints will be uh, conversant with the way Augustine thought about things. So those are the two threads that run through it. Mm. Uh, and then I just looked for things that were kind of interesting. Yeah, with everything to choose from, I think you did a great job. We'll go through the main points that you talk about. You're also drawing on different sources, not just the New Testament, but also extra-canonical works, um, also talking about apocalypses, talking about mystic poetry from early Syriac Christianity, and we'll get to know a little bit of that throughout the interview here. The first thing that you're covering, uh, the first idea, is the descent of Christ. And there are vague passages in First Peter that Christians have been puzzling over down through the centuries. That book describes Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison after his death, and it also says that the gospel is preached to the dead. So what did early Christians think about what was happening there? Well, they had a, they had a lot of um, ideas about that. And the interesting thing about it is, you know, he, it says that he preaches to the spirits. Modern historical critical exegesis says that that's not humans who have passed away. That's sort of demonic forces or something like that. Um, and that what he's preaching to them is that salvation has come, but it will never come to them. That's kind of depressing. Many early <laughs> That's a bad yeah. message. <laughs> That's a bad, there's a bad <laughs> look there, you know. I, I've never been able, I've never been really comfortable with that. Um, my <laughs> yeah. dissertation advisor, that was kind of one of his things. And 
<laughs> I was never happy about that one. But, um, you know, they didn't all go that way. They understood that, you know, Christ had gone down, descended into death, had completed, that completed his full humanity. He had done then what every human went through. He passed into death. Why? What did he do there? Because, you know, there's these dies on Friday and we find the empty tomb on uh, the Sunday morning. And what did he do? Well, they think he talked to folks and they're a little, they're not, they're not sure who he talked to or exactly what he talked about, but they think he was down there preaching the gospel in that realm, just as he had when he was alive. And you point out that this has been depicted in, in Christian art, iconography, not just in story, but also in the things that Christians created and viewed, which is, is really interesting to see some of these old images of Jesus entering into, these, into this darker realm. And smashing the gates of hell and beating down the walls, you know, and, and um, yeah, it's a, for them, you know, it's a, it was an important moment. Um, the earliest part of a, you know, they, they talk about the proclamation early on, and then um, along about the time Christianity becomes a legal religion or a majority religion, that's when it kind of shifts to smashing the ramparts of hell, and you know, um, there's much more of a militant, kingly, royal feel to it after that. Uh, but it, it reflects what they were interested in at the time, and and uh, what seemed to make sense to them. Yeah, you point to some of these early Christian fathers. Ignatius is one of them who talked about Jesus going down to talk to the prophets, for example, like people who had died. Uh, so not demonic forces per se, but actually, you know, just people who had died, even, even the great ones. Well, and that's, you know, Ignatius is really kind of early. So early Christianity, you know, runs from there in the first century on to about the fifth, fifth century or so, maybe the sixth century. That's a long period, and the New Testament only covers less than 100 years of that. Uh, and um, Ignatius is probably one of the earliest uh, to come up with it, and he's very brief about the whole thing. He's gone to speak to the prophets. Well, that was a thing of some concern. If you had to believe in Christ to be saved, if you're justified by faith, however, however you want to think about that, right? how did they know about Christ would be the first question. And um, if they didn't know about him in life, then how did they find out about him? So, yeah, that that was a real hot topic. What about the um, great prophets of the Old Testament? Because you can't you can't imagine them being left out of God's salvation. So, how did that work? Uh, okay, so we preached to the prophets. What about other people who were good people? And um, this this early Christian world understood philosophers philosophy as kind of the doorway to Christianity. It was a period of time where Christianity was considered, you know, the capstone or the pinnacle of philosophy. The great philosophers had entered in to the anteroom or had begun that process, but they never heard of Christ either, so they couldn't be finished. And so then the next debate becomes, well, did Christ talk to them as well? Or um, did, you know, Christ's disciples do that? And of course, it's the shepherd of Hermas that has uh, the most obvious, I think, um, understanding of that, that yes, the disciples did go talk uh, uh, just as they had done uh, while they were alive. Hmm. And you show early Christians wondering, like, if Gentiles who had died would be preached to, or and, and some leaders were even saying, you know, the idea that 
Jesus went to speak to all the dead or that all the dead would hear it was kind of a foolish idea, actually, that there were some limits that early Christians sometimes placed on like who Jesus was actually reaching down there. Not to mention people who say he wasn't reaching anybody, he was just announcing his victory, but also people said, oh, he reached <laughs> some, he didn't reach others. So there's some different views here going on. Yeah, there's a there's a big question of the justice of God and the mercy and the justice of God inside there. And really, kind of the mainstream that runs through it uh, is that there is a demarcation. There are those who live the sort of life that um, was either aligned with that of the Christian of, of Christ or was pointing in that direction. And uh, it seemed to make sense to people that for those, um, the, you know, salvation would be offered. It would make sense to offer salvation. But there were those who had made choices that were not consistent with that sort of a path, and it didn't make sense to them that those people would um, have this opportunity. So there was a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of argument about it. Yeah. So this idea that Jesus descended to preach was there. There was also the idea that Jesus descended just to finish the defeat of death and hell, that there were actually powers that Jesus had to descend beneath in some kind of some kind of metaphysical way, that his journey there really made an impact on how death and hell actually operated, right? Right. Well, I mean, you know, the Gospel of Nicodemus kind of sets the whole stage for um, uh, a lot of uh, the ideas in the Middle Ages about what Christ was doing and about him smashing those ramparts and whatever. Uh, and that is a fascinating, uh, that's a fascinating story of the Gospel of Nicodemus, uh, to see how they are thinking about what exactly it is Christ did and all the other folks who were involved, you know, that uh, the sons of Simeon are part of that uh, operation. And uh, then the patriarchs and the prophets are passed off to Michael to take up to heaven. So they've been thinking very carefully not just about what he did, but how he did it and how it would all make sense to happen. Mm. It had a powerful impact on medieval imagination. Like you said, you could fill books. You could fill books and books with all the different ideas uh, that Christians thought about when it comes to this. That gives us a good sense of Jesus' descent. There's more in the chapter as well. Let's talk about your next point, which is purgatory. And most early Christians didn't necessarily expect that when they died, they would just go meet Jesus or go be with God immediately. They expected that there would be some kind of processes of justification, which is sort of being made right with God, or sanctification, which is being made pure in some way, and that they would have to undergo those. Maybe there was a few people that could skip out on it, some martyrs or special people or whatnot, but they kind of expected the process of being changed by Christ to extend into the afterlife. So 1 Corinthians, for example, talks about purging that would happen. What were early Christians thinking about in terms of this purgatory, this purging? Yeah, um, so it's pretty clear in Revelation that those who die, the martyrs, go straight to heaven. And there was a very literal understanding. They are under the altar of God in the temple. That is a very safe and secure place to be. If you have a choice, go be there, right? What about the rest of us? What's going to happen there? Um, Death interrupts this process of um, sanctification, but it didn't make sense to people that would have put an end to it. Uh, so there was there would still be something going on, but the purgatorial ideas of early Christianity uh, were not those of uh, the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages had a lot of rules and laws and ideas about you know 
paying for these sins. In early Christianity, it was, it was less of a process, more of an event sort of a thing. So they don't, they don't, you know, they don't have uh, 10 million years in purgatory, and they don't have the idea that it, it can be requited, requited by walking on your knees up the stairs or anything. But they think that, yeah, that, that this process that we call sanctification will continue, and um, whatever is left within us that's not right will have to get set right. So the idea of purgatory, the, uh, the idea that we become the medieval purgatory is there pretty early. Hmm. Interesting. You point out another significant passage that contributed to what people thought about purgatory. This is in Matthew 12, uh, where it says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven them, neither in this world neither in the world to come. And that kind of raises the possibility of forgiveness of sin in the world to come. Did early Christians think of it that way? They, they did. Uh, they did. And once again, it, it tended to have to do with your orientation while you were alive. If you were oriented toward the right path, and they understood the right path, by the way, to be the reasonable path. So philosophers could be there too. Those who had studied philosophy, mm. who thought carefully about these things, could be on this path as well. If you were on that path, death wasn't going to end it. If you were not on the path, then you know that was another ball game. But um, yeah, there was the idea that um, there would be something, some in some fashion, sin would be forgiven, dealt with, and you know, and. Um, God's justice and God's mercy, you know, they don't end with our deaths either. We talked about this with Dr. Catherine Taylor in another episode, too, that there were things that early Christians would actually do to participate in the lives of the saints who had died, the lives of church members who had died, Christians who had died, and some of those means that you mentioned here, interceding on behalf of the dead through prayers or giving alms and, and other ways. And your chapter fits really well hand-in-hand, hand, I think, with Catherine Taylor's when it comes to that. Sure, because the idea that the living maintains some sort of relationship with the dead was not limited to Christianity. Roman customs had that sort of thing as well. And once again, it, the changes occur because Christ is, becomes part of it. And uh, that, that's mm. always, always mm. in their heads. How does, how does Christ affect our understanding of these things? One of the things that they seem really concerned about is that nobody gets away with anything. There seems to be <laughs> like this recurring worry that like, hey, don't think that you can just do whatever you want and, and kind of like fix it after death. There, a lot of early Christians did seem to really want kind of a stark line that could be drawn in the sand. Is that is that right? Well, I mean, how, <laughs> some things never change. You don't have to sit in gospel doctrine class too long <laughs> to see the same idea. Uh, yeah. we don't, we don't want to see anybody, we want, we don't want to see anybody get away with anything, but yes. And, and once again, it comes back to the idea of your orientation, where to which direction were you oriented hmm. that would, you know, then that would determine how this, how the afterlife worked out for you because it wasn't, your path was not going to change. You were going to continue on down that path. Uh, and, um, Christ made that possible. Yeah. We don't see much of this idea that like, um, that, that they would, Latter-day Saints often see, like, we die, spirits go to spirit prison or paradise, uh, people in prison can have the gospel preached to them, they could, you know, then there's ordinances that are performed. That clear of a picture really doesn't emerge clearly in the New Testament, even now, and that's why with modern revelation and restoration scripture, when Joseph Smith talked about ordinances for the dead and different degrees of glory, that it caught 
a lot of people off guard, even church members who had a history of Christianity, they converted from other Christian perspectives and had a hard time with some of that because that picture isn't clearly depicted in the New Testament. One of the things that struck me as I was doing it was that um, the Latter-day Saints are or undergo or do the same things that were being done in early Christianity. Um, we are looking at these same texts, asking questions that are meaningful to us, and then working out what the answers are that make sense to us. And there's a huge difference between Ignatius, uh, who thinks that Christ talked to the prophets, and the fully worked out vision of the redemption of the dead. And that reflects thinking, study, and revelation on how we think this all works out. Uh, the same thing went on um, in early Christianity, exactly the same thing, uh, with ideas that, that were of concern to them. Yeah, it's a fascinating parallel to see the kind of development, even as Latter-day Saints were reading the Book of Mormon, that had a very heaven-hell dichotomy. And then, you know, you're seeing similar things for early Christians as they're worrying and thinking and hoping about different possibilities for loved ones who have died and so on. So the impulses seem to be pretty common. I, I know that the past is a foreign country, and we should really be careful about uh, the comparisons that we make and the parallels that we draw, but I think these underlying concerns of love for people and and what happens at death, a lot of that carries through, and you can see it in the conversations that people are having. What about you know that, that's exactly that? What about my family? What about my child that died? Mm. You know, and and um, you know, Grandma was seventy two when she became a Christian. She died, and Christ still hadn't come. What about grandma? You know, and, and that, yeah. those impulses are part of being human. And the answers are humans asking the questions and God responds. That's Dr. Jill Kirby. We're talking about the chapter that she wrote called Living in the Afterlife, Heaven, Hell, and Places Between. It's found in the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. All right, Jill, let's talk about hell. Uh, I laughed at this. <laughs> I introduced this section. I just want to read this here. It says, The interest of humans in the nature of eternal punishment far exceeds the available revelatory insight, but that imbalance has never slowed, let alone stopped, the flood of lurid speculation. There's a lot of stuff about hell. Right? <laughs> Always. And, it, you know, it hasn't stopped. It's very interesting in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it says that uh, Joseph Smith uh, saw that particular realm, but straightway the vision was closed up. Uh, <laughs> mm. You know, so <laughs> yeah. there you go. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of people working on hell. And uh, those apocalypses that I kind of focused on, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Paul, um, are, were also very influential in the uh, Middle Ages. And of course, those who are familiar with Dante's Divine Comedy uh, we'll definitely hear those apocalypses kind of seasoned with the theology of Thomas Aquinas, but nevertheless, clearly the same ideas. Hmm. I really liked the cultural parallels that you drew there that I was unfamiliar with that uh, from the wider Greco-Roman world. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the catabatic literature. Uh, give us a little bit about that. So there have been um, stories of descent into the realm of the dead and into the places of punishment um, since forever. And some of the paintings on, you know, cave paintings from prehistory might be up that alley as well. But there were uh, a good many different stories in the Greco-Roman world. And, of course, what happens with Christians is then Christ is inserted into that. And then 
the followers of Christ. You know, so how will this happen? Both apocalypses have the punishment being associated with whatever it is you did that was wrong. So yeah, there's like lists of sin or whatever. Yeah, like here's all the bad things, and here's what you get when you do it. Yeah. So adultery, um, uh, women are hung by their hair because. That's how women catch men, and um, men are hung by their, I think I used the word thigh, but that's not quite what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we got to okay. keep this PG here. but um, we got to keep it PG, but I think everybody is picking up yeah, on what you're putting picking up on down. this idea, yeah. And very often you're um, submerged into whatever the offending body part is in uh, fire or filth mm. or something like that. Anyway, the punishment matches a crime, and mm. that seems, you know, a, a uh, there's once again we're, we're talking about people working out issues. Issues of divine justice. Uh, in the earliest of the apocalyptic tours of hell, the sins are those of the wider Greco-Roman world, you know, so the dishonesty, that sort of thing. Get a little further into Christianity, mm. and then the sins start to be the sins of Christians. Mm. And you can tell that we're dealing with monastic texts because there's a lot of interest in virginity. And, uh, so yeah, celibacy, celibacy was a, yeah, it was a big deal. It was a lot of thinking about that, but yeah, those two apocalypses, um, very striking, very graphic in some ways. And you point out that by the time we get to Augustine, he's looking back at some of those and backing away from them a little bit. Basically, it, it's as though he sees them as problematic, and he's like, you know. Actually, maybe the punishment of the damned is more about being deprived of our ability to reason or would be unable to connect with God or something. So he's actually kind of stepping back away from the most graphic accounts, it seemed like. Yeah, Augustine is a philosopher, and it's very clear – it's going to be very clear in his head that keeping the commandments is not a deprivation from what we would like to do. It is what we should like to do because it's the reasonable and rational way to go through life. And so his his idea about hell, well, hell will be the place where you will lack the ability to recognize and align yourself with a good life. And I got to I got to I got to agree with him. That would be hell right off the bat. Uh, but he's um, he steps away from the lurid, lurid speculation. And uh, he's pretty clear that um, these are spurious, uh, you know, that the, that the mm. dates don't match up with these things. So he's thinking critically about these as well. All right. Well, you've taken us down to hell and talked about punishment. And so it's only fitting that we can end talking more about heaven and eternal rewards, which your chapter does. This is something that Christians spend a lot of time thinking about as well. And you talk about how they're drawing on scriptural imagery of celestial cities or beautiful gardens. And you turn to some early poetry from Syriac Christians to give a sense of what they were thinking about when it came to eternal rewards. What did you find in this poetry? I mean, it's beautiful. Our ideas of heaven tend to be centered around whatever we think is a problem now. And heaven is going to fix that. So, for example, I'll be teaching and I'll ask my students, um, the second coming is next week. What are you looking forward to? And Almost uniformly, they're looking forward to meeting someone who has passed away because that's the thing humans have never managed to fix. But the New Testament very often is looking forward to things like having enough food and good things to drink. You know, the messianic 
the Messianic feast because they were all mm-hmm. within, you know, three days or so of starvation. Most of the world was um, in abject poverty. And so when they thought about, you know, heaven and having all that fixed, they thought about much more physical things than we do. Uh, so there's a longing underneath all of the speculation about heaven. And uh, in Syriac, Syriac passages, they're so beautiful. Uh, we are going back to a place where everything is in harmony and everybody is in harmony. And all the things that drive us nuts uh, and make us you know, want to take um, our Valium are gone. And uh, so I picked, the, I, you know, I picked that mystical poetry because it speaks to that idea, that longing uh, to have this life over with and done with successfully and then move into the great things that God has prepared for us. Uh, but, you know, like the visions of hell, don't know too much about it. Mm. Don't know too much about the details. I've got a passage here. Here's an example of some of this poetry. This is from second century odes of Solomon, and it's describing a righteous person. It says, And I drank from the living water that dies not and became drunk, and my drunkenness was not without knowledge, but I abandoned vanities and returned toward the Most High, my God, and became rich by his gracious gift, and I left folly behind, dropped on the earth, and I stripped it off and cast it from me. And the Lord renewed me by his garment and gained me by his light, and from above he gave me imperishable rest, and I was like the earth that flourishes and laughs in its fruits. Man. And that's an English translation. I can only imagine what it sounds like in the original. Well, you know, it's beautiful. And I, I would call out, I call to your attention once again there, the idea that this perfected life contains the perfection of the rational part of humanity. So I gave up folly, mm. right? You know, I left my vanities behind. To go to heaven is to live in that rational world. It's a, it's a wonderful thought. Um, and that rational world would be a world where things were in harmony because, you know, a lot of what we fight about and worry about is really not all that rational. We try to control the future and we can't do it. And you also bring us up to Augustine again, and his view differed a little bit. Some of this early poetry dropped away in part because ideas about heaven and what that was like shifted over time. And Augustine is an example of this, talking about the beatific vision or like the most beautiful vision. And it's it's a believer's final union with God. And he describes it as being this unspeakable joy that in a certain way, he says, the human mind dies and becomes divine and is inebriated with the riches of God's house. You almost just sort of become part of with God. You're, it's just this yeah. state of ultimate joy. The beatific vision, the blessed vision, the beatific vision, uh, it, that yet remains a significant part of the Catholic uh, understanding of heaven. But you can spend eternity contemplating God, learning about God, and never exhaust God. Uh, and you become, you know, be immersed in God's virtues and and uh, God's holiness, God's excellence. And for Augustine, heaven is very much a mental, intellectual, rational thing. And and he leaves behind um, sort of anything that has much physical content to it at all. And of course, you know, our uh, St. Ephraim (laughs) is pretty physical. 
it doesn't have much of a sexual side to it at all. Yeah. Because uh, you are uh, resurrected without um, those parts. Uh, but um, it's still pretty sensual. You know, you, you, you smell, mm -hmm. you hear, you taste, you, taste um, yeah. you feel. So, yeah, and the taste was a big deal to them. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, they back off. Augustine backs off of the physical side of it. He's very much a philosopher. And for him, it's very much a, a, a mental, a contemplative activity uh, to mm. know and to understand, to begin to understand God better than we do now. That To him, that, there could be nothing better than that. How about different levels? Did they talk about degrees of glory or things that Latter-day Saints might recognize and perhaps in ways that are different from what Latter-day Saints might think? Yeah, Augustine does not have, uh, I don't think he has really the degrees of, of uh, glory there. Certainly the um, Syriac poetry certainly does. And they insist that uh, things like the three levels of Noah's Ark prefigured, you know, the organization of heaven. But they're also very clear that even if you are in that lowest level of heaven, you are completely satisfied. You're not in that lowest level of heaven looking up and going, hey, I wish I were somewhere else. Uh, you are completely satisfied. Um, whatever level of heaven you're in is great. Yeah. Augustine kind of shares that you talk about at the end here where he talked about a sort of sociality in heaven or that there or perhaps that there were different levels of happiness and glory, you say, and but that that wouldn't be marred by discontent or envy. Yeah. So yeah. there's an idea of like, you know, people aren't necessarily all the same, but there's also not this feeling of envy or whatever. Right, and, and of course, with Augustine, you always have him pulling back on the reins of speculation. He doesn't think that too much speculation is very helpful, so uh, uh, he, he definitely will rein things back in. Uh, but yeah, the, he expects a sociality there as well. All right, well, before we go, Jill, I just have one more question here. As you prepared this chapter and as you're thinking back on it now, is there anything else that you hope more Latter-day Saints could come to understand about early Christian thought? Something that we might benefit from thinking more about or um, something that surprised you in the process of learning about these things? Just what would you like to offer to Latter-day Saints as something to, to chew on from your work? Uh, I think the thing uh, that I enjoyed most about it was when I finally came to understand, I say finally because it took a while, uh, you know, I spent a while being the um, professor from hell. Uh, but <laughs> That's appropriate to the topic, of course. You know, where, where the professor where you got to pick everything apart and, and tally things up. But, uh, you know, at some point, you know, I began to relax and, and uh, relax and lean into it and, and think about what these folks believed. These are their testimonies. And they were happy. They were overjoyed at what Christ had done and at the presence of Christ in their lives. And um, if there were anything that, you know, I, I could wish that um, uh, others would pick up these uh, works of uh, ancient Christianity and read, read them, it would be to have that same sense uh, of a testimony of Christ. It ties us to them across the centuries, and it's a, it's a marvelous gift. Mm. 
That's Dr. Jill Kirby. She's an associate professor of religious studies at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin. She earned a bachelor's of science degree at the United States Military Academy at West Point, master's degrees from the University of Arizona and the University of Maryland. Her PhD was earned at Catholic University of America. And Dr. Kirby specializes in apocalyptic literature and also the intersection of science and religion. You can check out her chapter in Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. The chapter is called Living in the Afterlife, Heaven, Hell, places between. Jill, thanks a ton for spending the time with us. I really enjoyed your chapter. Hey, thanks, Blair. It's uh, it's always fun to uh, get to talk about this stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.